So, Bob, I have a bunch of questions that you and I are going to answer. What do you say? Let's answer one of them. So this is from the survey that I sent out asking people to submit questions for you and me to answer. Is there ever a time when an extramarital affair can be justified? Bob, what do you think? No, but this word justified, I'm this is the thing. It's like, what are you saying? Are you saying where, what, it's street legal or it's sanctioned by or the other the other person in the relationship should therefore be okay with it? Like, um, I th- or are you saying you wish there not to be a negative consequence of the thing? Um, um, or like a moral thing. I, you know, I'm not sure what the word means. So, right. Yeah. I, I would say generally no. And as a therapist, I don't kind of make, I don't make those judgments anyway. Yeah. Yeah. But as a citizen, I have, you know, friends that will tell me situations where they cheated while they were in like an abusive relationship, for example. Yeah. And although it's not a good thing to cheat, it's understandable. It's understandable. On some level, if you're being in a high control relationship and you feel like you can't get out and you're beaten down and you're terrified and you come across someone who likes you and you have some level of an affair with that person it's not a good thing to deceive it's not a good thing it's it's slightly self-destructive potentially but uh, i wouldn't necessarily fault someone for that no. uh, but yeah. yeah the vast majority of time when people are cheating it's it's immoral it's wrong it's it's it can come from a place where we might be able to conceptualize it like, Oh, the marriage is going downhill or you have attachment injuries from the past that are being displaced onto your current relationship, but it never justifies it. Uh, It's, it's a deceptive act and it takes a lot of tiny decisions to conduct an affair. Mm -hmm. People often, the people having affairs will often frame it as, I don't know. It just sort of happened. It's like, no, it didn't. You made probably, literally 3,000 little decisions, you came to 3,000 whys in the road and you chose the majority of the time to have the affair and then you ended up having that relationship with that person. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Where do you see yourself in 10 years, Bob? Oh. um, You'll be 64? Yes. I'll be 64 in 10 years. I will be 10 years more mature and wise as a therapist, um, married to Colleen, should probably be retired. Um, I may be working as much as I do now. I may be working less. It sort of depends on what our goals are. Um, I like my house. I kind of want to live there. Mm-hmm. Um, though, um, we, you know, she and I, we talk about that pretty regular. You do? Yeah. Um, about I, what? About moving. Why? Sometimes moving um, um, to change the scene, to change, just change things, to change the neighborhood we live in. Um, uh, like to, to have a different neighborhood or yeah. like closer to services? And- yeah, Trader Joe's mostly. Yeah. <laughs> um, or or to change change like cities. Okay. Um so that's not something that I'm I don't want to do that. I I like where we live and Does she want to? Yeah, yeah, she does. Oh. Um where does she want to live? It varies. Lately she's been fascinated with Portland, which I get. Portland's lovely. Yeah. Um So, you know, um 
but wherever it is, we'll she and me be together. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what would determine if you worked less as a therapist? You're saying financially? Yeah, my 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 financial needs. Um, you know, therapists don't work like forty hour weeks. Is everything okay? Yeah, uh, it, Bob sees me looking out the window. There's there was this huge blue jay that. Oh landed on my lights and it i was like is he gonna tear you know i have these string lights yeah. up and i i thought he was gonna destroy them but uh he he's doing okay he's oh, right on <laughs> anyway um well for How about you yeah me in yeah. 10 years i don't know but i suspect same yeah i i i, I like my life now and i'm I, I would be happy if it was the same. You know, sometimes I I think about... Because one of the things I used to do to fall asleep 20 years ago is, and maybe even sooner than that, I would imagine that I got I had a million dollars. Oh, right. And I would think, okay, what am I going to spend the money on? You know, it's okay, well, I'd pay off my debt here. That would be, that would be like that amount of dollars. And then I would... The first thing I'd want to do is I'd want to, like, splurge on something big mm. and what would I splurge on? And okay, maybe I'd spend like $5,000 on that thing. And then by the time I got to like $250,000, I'd fall asleep. Well, the other night I tried to do that mental exercise to fall asleep. And I instantly thought, well, well, another part of that exercise would be, you know, if I had a lot of money, what, what would I change in my life? That's another part of it. Right. Would I work less or, something you know what sort of freedom uh, activity what i what i do and i was thinking about that and i just i came up blank i thought i there's really nothing i would want to change about my life <laughs> like everything is i mean i tend to be that sort of way anyway i've always been a fairly satisfied person and so you know who knows but I hesitate to say that things will be the same in 10 years because uh, my career has changed pretty drastically 10 years, 10 years, you know, if if we rewind 10 years, I was a full-time professor. I had a pretty robust practice, actually. I obviously was supervising. Mm -hmm. I had a very, very small podcast. (laughs) Um, I was in a band, Uh, you know, all these things that... Uh, sort of more, I guess, you know, once the pandemic is truly over, I want to get the band back together. But anyway, and then you go f- 10 years back from that. And I was a adjunct professor, but so very, very part-time. I was a full-time therapist. I didn't have a podcast. <laughs> I was probably in a band at that point too. You're probably more than full-time. Right. Exactly. So, um, so I don't know, uh, but I'd be perfectly happy. I think if things were exactly the same as they are now. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, another question: Have either of you ever worked in a hospital or residential setting? If so, can you describe what that experience was like? Yeah, I have. Um, when I got out of college, I worked as a mental health tech um, in a private psychiatric hospital. Um, working with children, little ones, four to 13. And that was awesome. That was back in the days when I don't even know if that sort of thing still exists, but the kids would be hospitalized for a month 
and mostly it was just behavioral program um, helping um, little ones who you know were having some struggles behaviorally and there was some focus on you know helping their families but I liked it because the kids were really lovely little little tigers. Um, I don't know that it actually did anybody any good. They prescribed a lot of antipsychotics, and you know it's hard to imagine that that was necessary. Um, I think it wasn't, um, and the kids probably there wasn't enough focus on what's going on in their families, so that they weren't just sent back into the same old, same old. So I don't know that we really did anybody any good outside of respite from whatever difficult or chaotic circumstance they were in. When you went to open house at Antioch in 1995, did you know about the marriage and family therapy program? I don't know. I think so. I mean, I think I did. Cause you know, you and I would have gone to the same open house or the same uh, admissions department and you chose the counseling, the mental health counseling track. And I chose the marriage and family therapy track. I don't remember going to the open house. Oh, really? I? I do. I remember because Paul was there and, and I was going to be a counselor. And then he talked about the marriage and therapy program, which had actually just started uh, uh, maybe months earlier. That's new? Yeah, it was that new. Oh, I didn't know that. Neither did I. I don't think I would have chosen if I knew it was that fledgling. Wow. You remember when we went to graduation, you came to my graduation, wait, so back then they had graduation almost every quarter or maybe twice a year. Twice a year. And so yours was in June, mine was in December. Correct. Because the marriage and family therapy program was longer. Longer. Than the counseling program uh, back then. And uh, and plus I was fired from my first internship, so that kind of sent me back a little bit. <laughs> but uh, I don't know if you remember, but the counseling graduating class was like 30 people and the marriage and family therapy graduating class was like three people. No, I don't remember that. Uh, at yeah. All. And I remember I didn't know that cause I, I just figured it was half and half, but I was like, why are there so few marriage and family therapists? Anyway, I'm just curious if, if you, cause we were in the same boat, we both wanted to be a therapist yeah. and we went to a university where you could choose either pretty easily. Yes. And there was a lot of overlap between the two. And you could even switch back then, but between them, you could be like, ah, I think I'll go to counseling yeah. or ah, I think I'll go to marriage and family therapy. Now you can't really do that. But, no. um, so I was just curious if, if you remember making that choice or did you just like, well, no counseling, mental health counseling. That's all my standard. experience. Yeah. All my experience was, um, in personal counseling yeah. and I thought I'll just do that. So yeah, I worked in two different residential, uh, settings, never in a hospital, one, I was a uh, worker, so I decided to become a therapist, and I had never had any jobs doing anything closely related to the therapy profession, and you also needed to have some experience to apply. You needed to have, back then, you needed to have 100 hours of, of practical experience, and essentially what that was meant to do was to make sure that the uh, the applicant knew what they were getting into, which I don't think it really does that. And that's why we got rid of it. But, and it was kind of a hassle because there were only certain things that qualified. One of the things that mainly qualified is the, the crisis line. Yeah. Uh, you work at the crisis line, you volunteer. And so that's pretty close to, you know, the action of helping, but not really. I mean, it's not, it's not like therapy, but anyway, so uh, we had that requirement back then. Do you remember having that? But you already, 
you didn't need didn't, to notice it because you had already worked in the field. Yeah. Well, I didn't have anything. And so no. I asked around, I think, where I could volunteer. And there there was this group home in Ballard called Iwasil, which was f- for, uh, it was a Native American um, foundation ran, run by the Seattle Indian Association or something. I can't remember what they call themselves. But, but the... And so a lot of the practices in the group home was based on Native American ceremonies and practices. But the kids were not necessarily Native American. There's only a small percentage that were. But the house was huge. I I wonder what happened to that house because it's a beautiful Ballard mansion in, you know, up near Crown Hill and uh, just gigantic. And... Back then, Ballard was a crappy place to live, you know, and so uh, the house probably only cost like $150,000 or something, you know, today it's probably literally like $5 million or something. Oh. But anyway, uh, there were probably 30 kids that lived there. It was a pretty big, big facility, yeah, and there were a number of staff members and they had their own therapist that worked there. And so I worked under her and she she just had me hang out with, with the with the kids one-on-one and we would talk and stuff. And, and I remember just struggling because most of the kids didn't want to talk to me. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I was 23 or 24. I was barely older than they were. Yeah. And I just remember feeling like, can you just give me my volunteer hours? You know, <laughs> I was trying to get into it, but it was hard. Yeah. Uh, but very, put a have a big impression on me i I have a lot of memories from that you know three month stint at that uh ballard house anyway the other place i so then once i got into the program i started working at for an organization that provided psychological or i don't know social work type services to families and one of the things that they did is they um staffed a group home for kids in Everett and the, there were four beds, four or five beds and it was, um, staffed 24 seven. And these were behaviorally disturbed, you know, behaviorally disabled or whatever they said back then, kids, teenagers. And I would do shifts, you know, get paid to do these shifts. And my job was essentially just to oversee the kids and make sure that they weren't, um, killing each other or running off or, and occasionally my job was to one-on-one hang out with, you know, talk with them. Um, this job was, uh, was okay. There was always another staff member there. So, you know, there's a lot of watching TV or doing an exercise or, you know, it was, it was a pretty easy job, but there were flashes of moments where it was just utterly awful where, cause I didn't know what I was doing. And when you have two 13-year-olds with massive traumas trying to kill each other, Mm. and what am I supposed to do? Am I supposed to physically intervene? Am I supposed to, you know, there there just wasn't, there wasn't any training. There wasn't any direction. There was this one woman who, she was like the manager, and she knew exactly what to do. She always knew how to talk to these kids to get them to stop doing whatever they were doing. I knew nothing. Yeah. And 
I just wanted her to tell me how she was so good at what, but they never took the time. And I was probably minimum wage. You know, there was, it was a very stressful kind of flapping in the wind sort of experience. And there was this one moment when one of the girls just decided to target me with all of her anger and her um, judgments and, and her spite. Mm-hmm. And she knew exactly what to say to get under my skin. I don't remember what it was about, but she, she definitely got under my skin. And I was trying to uh, please her. I was trying to get her to like me, I guess. And she was just ripping into me. And I, I started to cry. Mm-hmm. And I remember driving home from my shift that day thinking a lot about it and after going back and forth and thinking and feeling by the time I got home I had realized that I was now a different professional that before when she made me cry I was naive and open and trusting and soft and trial by fire because of this incident i am now harder and not naive Mm. and not necessarily trusting of people that i don't know and professional i remember that that moment and i've i've trained a lot of therapists as they go through those moments too there every therapist always has to did you have a moment like that where you maybe even before you were a therapist where you had to learn oh I can't be naive and soft anymore. I can't think of one, but of course. I mean, how could it not be so? Right. What do you think it involved? Mm. Let's see. Well, last time we were together, I told you about the time I cried at my job interview. Mm-hmm. Um, and my boss said to me, well, you know, I just need to know that you're going to be able to hold it together while you're here that you're not going to be impacted by your own trauma. And I said, yeah, I think that's going to be okay. And he's like, okay, well, then you can work here. Um, But what I'm talking about is that naive openness that you have when you first enter the field. Because, you know, most of us enter this field because we want to help people. mm -hmm. And there's this, I, I find, universal naivete that young or new professionals will have where they have this very fantastical notion of what it's like to help. Um, and sometimes it applies, but sometimes it doesn't, you know, meaning that some of your clients won't like you. Some of your clients won't be on your side. Some of your clients will actually try to hurt you uh, physically or emotionally. Um, some of the times you're going to hate your clients if you don't really work at it. It's not all fun and games. It's not like in the movies all the time. And the, uh, I find every therapist has to go through that moment where they were, uh, they 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 wanted to treat all clients and coworkers as like friends and family but you can't do that because not everyone that you come into contact in this profession can be trusted with that level of openness there are going to be some clients there are going to be some coworkers there are going to be some supervisors there are going to be some professors who are actually uh, unsafe and might actually be out to get you and that's what i that's what broke me in that moment was I thought that 
if I was a good person and if I was nice and if I was caring and if I was, if my heart was in the right place, things would work out, but it didn't in that moment. You know, she tore me apart and it didn't, you know, she didn't change at the end of the process. She didn't be like, Oh, I, I, you know, I shouldn't do that. And I learned I need to be a professional. I'm at work and I can care and I can, I can have love when it's appropriate or when it's safe to do that. But I need to know that I'm at work and this is a job and this, these people aren't my family members, you know, uh, I, that's what I went through. And I feel like all the trainees I've worked with, they have to go through that at some point. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure it's true. I can't think of a time. Another question. Is it possible to have a successful long-term relationship with someone with an avoidant attachment style if they aren't willing to work on themselves or work on issues as a couple? Sure. Is it possible to have a successful? What do you think they're getting at in that question? Um, I think they're talking about closeness and intimacy. Like I think that's maybe how success is being defined in this. Yeah. Um, well, um, I um, this is a black and white kind of thing. Yeah. Right. I don't know that this is a black and white thing. I think about this. I think couples are in conflict cycles sometimes, and when they're not in a conflict cycle, oftentimes you know things are fine. So even folks who are avoidant aren't always avoidant, but right. when there's a conflict, that that style might show up and therefore, you know, um, add to the conflict. And of course, the conflict will add to maybe more avoidant behavior or whatever. But but um, it's a mistake to believe that um, somebody's attachment insecurity is always showing up. It probably isn't. Right. That's a great point. There's this misconception that if you're preoccupied or avoidant or something that you're always that way. And that is, as Bob was saying, not true, that you're only that way when you're scared, Yeah. when you're terrified. Now, some people are terrified all the time, but the issue is how do you create a situation with an avoided person where they're not afraid? And that can be hard to do, mm-hmm. but, uh, but it is achievable. And when they're not afraid, then they don't need to avoid, then they will be Uh, relaxed and fluid in their attachment, receiving and giving. How do you overcome shame? There's a lot of questions kind of along these lines that uh, we get. And so, you know, I think this is a, a lot of people want to know this because they might feel a lot of shame, chronic shame. Bob, how do you overcome your shame? Well, um, basically through exposure. So um, I encourage people to, um, check out a little nugget of gold on NPR called the Rejection Game. If you if you Google the Rejection Game on NPR, you'll probably find it. It's a five minute piece, and there's also I think a written article, which is basically a transcript of the of the audio piece about a man who overcomes his fear of rejection by basically letting himself get rejected. Um, so basically he's overcoming shame that when I think about shame, that's what I think. I think shame is either the fear and anticipation of, or the actual experience of rejection. Mm -hmm. So, uh, me personally, it's chipping away at, um, allowing myself to be known and seen. What does that mean? It means, um, (laughs) 
<laughs> well, it means sometimes I'm obnoxious. <laughs> and you might still like me or love me. Um, it means that you can be upset with me, and it doesn't mean that I'm a bad or terrible person. Right. And um, for me, often it's about risking saying what's really on my mind. Like um, like the other day, I think I mentioned this in the last one, that I ended up talking to my therapist about the fact that I wanted to be special to him. And that evoked a lot of shame in me. We had a really important and beginning of a discussion about that. Because he actually didn't answer the question, which is good, because it's not time for that. Um, but um, going through that, talking about that is an antidote to shame, in part because it evokes shame. Right. Yeah. But then you realize, oh, there's nothing... Uh, well, so I hadn't thought about it this way until you said it, but it makes a lot of sense that, sh you know, the often what we hear from people writing in and what we see in our society is, you know, how do I cope? How do I get rid of this feeling? And for a lot of common responses, even if it's well-meaning, they'll just be like, well, just don't do it. Yeah. Just stop feeling that. Mm -hmm. Just don't, uh, you feel shame. Don't shame yourself. Don't beat yourself up. But, we are social creatures and we, and I know some people don't like it when I say this. I, I get emails sometimes from people saying that they actually are angry at me. And I suppose by extension, you oh, okay. <laughs> about saying that to heal from relationship traumas, you have to heal within a relationship. Uh, you don't necessarily have to all the time, but it, it's a, it, in my um, model of how humans work most if not all in some cases our um, self-improvement exists or takes place within the venue of a relationship oh yeah yeah so for example you suffer from chronic shame and you're beating yourself up a lot and you you know replay conversations in your mind like oh i can't believe i said that or my life is in shambles or I I can't believe I did that mistake or I, I'm so ugly or I'm so fat or, you know, whatever it is that you're beating yourself up about. And the antidote that people will say is, well, just stop doing that to yourself. Just have positive self-talk. You mm -hmm. know, this is a cognitive therapy, therapy you know, CBT technique. Mm -hmm. But the B in the CBT technique is behaviorism, which is habituation. And if you habituate to situations and learn a different reality, then your body will feel a different reality and you won't have intrusive shame anymore. So the uh, cure, as Bob was putting it and the, the, the words that I would use is, so, you know, a common shame is there's something wrong with me and people don't like me uh, or I'm, I'm too pushy. I'm too talkative. I'm I'm too, I don't listen well, I, I'm i not interesting, I, um, I don't know, just whatever common shames that people have around that. As Bob was saying, the way to heal from that, the way to overcome it, so to speak, is to experience a relationship in which that is the question mark. Am I good enough? Am I, and even being too talkative sometimes, you know? Like maybe you're too talkative sometimes and uh, your friend doesn't hate you. <laughs> your friend still likes you, but that needs to be facilitated over a long period of time 
we, you know, we need long-term relationships that experience us in all of our ups and downs to really trust that I am good enough and acceptable enough for someone to like me. And then shame goes down in my experience. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I can see why somebody would be upset with you for saying it. It's pretty threatening to a personal model of how to be, though I, I do happen to agree with you. Yeah. Why would it threaten people? Well, if I'm saying to myself, I've got to get right with me before I can be in a relationship, and some somebody else is saying, actually, the way to get right is to be in a relationship and go through it and survive it and grow through the relationship, that that's the, the MO. That'd be pretty scary advice. Right. Especially if my, you know, I'm attached to my um, view. But it's what I would do if I were afraid. Stay by myself. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and I get that. Yeah, I do and too. I, and I'm not saying people are supposed to do it, and I'm not saying you can't do anything on your own. No. But I'm saying that in my experience... Uh, uh, it doesn't work very well when you're by yourself. <laughs> and this is the whole premise of therapy, yeah. right? Relational trauma, needing a relationship in order to be healed. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, let's take a break. We'll get back more questions. What do you say, Bob? Yes. Hey, Deserving Listeners, as you all know, I am constantly recommending that people go to therapy. We all need therapy from time to time. Well, one of the options available that is definitely worth checking out is BetterHelp. If you're looking for a therapist, I would give it a try by going to betterhelp.com slash Kirk. Make sure you use the promo code Kirk because you get 10% off your first month and it really helps us out. As you watch these videos, I know many of you have been motivated to find your own therapist, which is great because you deserve it. And I know also that it can be hard to find a good fit, find the right one for you. Well, one of the options available in terms of your shopping is to go to betterhelp.com slash Kirk. I've been told you can start communicating with your therapist in under 24 hours. You can message your counselor at any time. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions. I've also been told that it's often less expensive than in-person therapy, and you should know that this service is available to clients worldwide. So go to betterhelp.com slash Kirk to get 10% off your first month today. All right, we're back from the break. Let's do some patron shout-outs for y'all, some OPPs. All these people became patrons of the podcast in February of 2018, and they've remained patrons this entire time wow we have reshima from new york new york we have ashley from Pearland, texas we have christina from albany new york we have barchinoy from god knows where we have sally from tulsa oklahoma you ever been to tulsa yes uh, what'd no. You think? no i don't know i don't <laughs> think so <laughs> have you been to oklahoma oklahoma city yeah oh, okay uh lg from texas Round Rock, Texas. We have Jacqueline from Livonia, Michigan. We have Veron Veronica from Leipzig, Germany. Oh. We have Rebecca, good old Rebecca. I think I've, I, I'm positive I've interacted with Rebecca from Sweden, from Tranis, Sweden. Wow. We have James from Reservoir, Australia. Wow. We have Sally. Is that two Sallys? We got two Sallys. We got another Sally from London, one Sally from Tulsa, another Sally from London. I wonder if they know each other. I mean, they probably do, right? They go to the meetings. Uh, Annabelle from Inverkeithing, Great Britain. Wow. Inverke 
key thing. Inver key thing. We got Anonymous from God Knows Where. We have Heather from Bellingham. Wow. Bellingham. I said Bellingham funny the first time. We have Laura from Port Natchez, Texas, and we have Melinda from God Knows Where. So thank you all for being patrons and patrons for so long. Wow, that's cool. Hey, yeah. I think we're coming up on my whatever. Are we? I I don't know. Colleen signed us up originally, and then... That's funny. I don't know when, though. Well, you'll get a shout out. Yeah. What is the optimal number of pet dogs, Bob? Oh, the optimal number of pet dogs. Well, we have one. Two's probably good. Um, I, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. You? There's no optimal number. It depends on a lot of things. Depends on what kind of life you want to lead. Yeah. It depends on how big your yard is, I suppose. Maybe. It depends on if you have time for them. Yep. Depends on, I guess, finances. Depends on the amount of emotional toll you want to go through when each of them dies. Oh, yeah. Because that's just one of the most the saddest things. Like, you get a pet and you're just like, well, one day I'm going to have to say goodbye. Um, so, I, you know, optimal number. I, I, you know, I could see someone having 15 dogs if they had a pretty big backyard and enough time for all 15 dogs, then that's a, that's a wonderful life. How do you manage out-of-session contact from your clients? Do you allow contact between sessions? And if so, what format do you allow, Bob? Um, people can call me. They can text. They can email. I invite them to do so if they need. Um, if it looks like that's going to be part of therapy, I orient to what is a coaching call. And they tend to be short time limited if a person wants an extra session i don't generally do it on the phone i'll say okay well it looks like you want an extra session shall we figure out when we're going to meet but um i noticed that i invite people to call me far more than they ever do yeah so if someone texted you on saturday mm -hmm. and said i'm going through something mm -hmm. can you please text me back would mm -hmm. you yeah I'd probably pick up the phone and call them oh you call them yeah and but clients don't ask to do that very often no no. What if a client did that every Saturday? Um, I would have to um, create some explicit limits around that. Yeah. And and talk with what is the function and purpose of this Saturday thing. And um, we would probably be discussing limits, theirs and mine, and trying to negotiate something. What about a client, and I'm sure this has happened to you at some point, will email you like pages and pages of stuff that's happening for them what about them are you asking if i read it what do you do with it i probably read it um like they send it once a week it's a long you oh. know several paragraphs that's never happened to me oh um I, i'm i guess what i do is read it and then i might what have if they're like get back to me Tell, oh. tell me what I should do, that kind of thing. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm, I, if somebody needs me, I say, look, don't, don't email me. If you need something from me, call me, right? Because text and email, you know, if you need something from me, call me, yeah. and I'm happy to speak with you. So Sunday night, client calls you, you yeah. pick up, you look at your phone, you yep. answer? Mm, I usually let it go to voicemail and then listen and see what I think about um, responding then and there. Yeah. Um, this does not happen much. Yeah. I see mostly couples now. And so I don't work with people that, um, get in crises that much, but I have many times. I usually just take the call. Yeah. 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 So for me, I've vacillated over the years on this. And the first thing I'll say is that there is an ethical consideration because 
with some clients, they will be reaching out in a crisis that we cannot respond to. So, for example, someone is suicidal and they text us at three in the morning and we've and we've given them the impression that we are available in that capacity. That is a uh, clear ethical violation on our part to not to give the impression that we are a 24 hour mental health service to someone if we're not because because we're not well no none of us are oh i know some people that are well they would have to have someone covering for them when they're asleep um some of the dbt people make themselves available 24 7 and they can't guarantee that um yeah there's some clause in there that says if you're in a crisis uh, don't use me and or if i can't get Right. Back to you, like, make sure you call the crisis line. Right, right, right. They, that, I, you can't leave it all on my shoulders. But that, that's my point. It's like there has to be some, yes. you know, kind of measure and some explanation and disclosure and policy. Because yeah. cause some therapists will just be, they won't have those policies or they won't communicate them well. And yeah. then, uh, and it's rare. Because I, I totally agree with you that, uh, you know, because I've always worked out of my home. You don't, you don't work out of your home. I've worked out of my home for 21 years and a question that, you know, meaning that my clients come to my house and I've lived in various places and sometimes it's my office is my living room, you know, so it's not even a secluded part of the house. And so, and people will often say like, well, but your clients know where you live. Is that a problem? I'm like, who do you think my clients are? (laughs) You know, you've seen what about Bob too many times. Uh, Clients are, just like you and me, they, they don't, yeah, they know where I live, but they don't want to stalk me. They're not interested in that. Uh, or even if they were, they wouldn't do it because they're, you know, they're, they can think they have a brain. They, they know not to do that sort of thing. And 21 years, I've never had a client show up to my house. I've never had a client, um, you know, make it a problem at all ever because, most the vast majority of people understand boundaries and I don't have, I don't have to explain. I don't have a, I don't have a conversation with my clients of like, don't show up to my house because I don't need to, because they just don't do it anyway. Um, and the questions are born out of uh, stigma about client who clients are. Yeah. It's like it, it, one of the responses sometimes I say, is like, if you had a therapist and you went to their home, would you show up to their house? <laughs> They're like, no, I wouldn't do that. Well, then why do you think my clients would? What kind of vision in your head do you have of, of a client? Right. <laughs> uh, anyway, so uh, when it comes to, uh, we have to be very clear about our policies regarding uh, how we're contacted by our clients. There's also HIPAA concerns mm-hmm. because the, all communication uh, technically needs to be protected uh, by of certain measures there's some squishiness around that that i've heard from legal experts that you can take some non-secure communications around scheduling for example as long as there's no client information but that needs to be discussed and you need to have a policy about that too as a, as a therapist what i have uh so in the beginning I was like you. I would I would take phone calls. I would take voicemails. I would take emails. I would and then when texting started happening, I would I would get texts. I would never encourage texting, but I would occasionally get a text from a client. And, you know, they'd say, "Oh, I'm going to be late," and I'd text them back. And but eventually, I got to a place where 
you know, because the one in a 500 client, that's really rare where this would become a problem where a client will text all the time and get upset that I didn't text them back or, and I'm like, I'm not working right now. And, or I, or I saw the text while I was out to dinner with my family and I forgot to look at it later, you know, cause once it's read, it doesn't, it's not alerted anymore or a client will, and this is again, extremely rare. An, another client will send me pages and pages of an email and say, what should I do? And I don't even have time to read the email because I'm working 60 hours a week. I, I don't have time to read. Uh, and I don't, and I, and if, and even if I did read it, I'm like, well, what do I do with this? I, mm-hmm. I can't, I can't do anything. I'm not, unless you have an emergency session, I'm just, we're just going to wait until the next time we see each other. Um, and then as I started to look into HIPAA more and legality and ethics and other kinds of things, um, clients who are in crisis having the impression that they, because, you know, if a client texts me on a Saturday and I text them back right away, I have now given them the impression, potentially, unless we have an a explicit conversation, that I am always right there next to my phone and available. So and I've read so many cases where when you give that impression and then a client uh, a few weeks later says, I am in a crisis, I'm going to kill myself. If you didn't have a conversation with them and the person dies, you could get sued because you gave that client the impression that you were a 24-7 crisis response uh, person. And you could even be partially causal in the suicide because you didn't respond back because they were hoping that you would. And so you have to, again, this is rare. It's, it's a pretty unusual client, but uh, you can't detect those clients, especially if you're, if you have kind of a revolving door of new clients, you can never know which client is going to be like that. And those clients exist. So for me over time, I uh, started to pull back from a certain uh, kinds of communication. The first thing I did is get rid of text because I, I have a hard time texting fast and I have a hard time communicating over text because it's such a limited space. And so I would tell clients that they can't text me, mm-hmm. like never, ever text me. Mm-hmm. And you can call, leave a voicemail. You can email me through my HIPAA compliant email address. Um, but I might not get to it until our meeting, you know, because if I, because of one, I don't have the time and two, what am I, because the, the other again, again, rare client, we're talking like one in 500 clients, maybe one in 200 clients will, you know, just be really interested in you as a therapist and they'll want to email you a lot and they'll want you to read lots of material and they're, they're just very interested in you knowing everything that's happening. And with some clients, when they do that, I'll be like, okay, we, we have an option and if it's clinically relevant, we could maybe meet twice a week, you know, so you could check in more often, you know, that kind of thing. But, but I'm not gonna, or I could charge you for reading your emails, which I think I did years ago, but I wouldn't do now anyway. So, uh, that's me rambling about that. What was the question? Uh, how do you manage out of session contact and oh. do you allow contact? Yeah. Uh, and generally speaking, um, I, I, like, I'm trying to remember the last time a client reached out to me in between sessions. It was probably years ago. Yeah. <laughs> so for me, it doesn't happen very often, but yeah. honestly, 
where my rigidness about this comes out is with my trainees because when you are training 20 therapists at least one of them a month is going to have a problem with this issue and so i just started telling all my trainees like you have to have this policy you cannot and um christy who was has been on the podcast before uh supervisee ex-supervisee of mine she uh ran into an issue like this and learned from a mistake to the because in the beginning because she's a very nice person very caring person and so at the beginning she she's like well they texted me i don't want to reject them you know oh they emailed me i don't want to reject them well she got burned in some pretty big ways and now well i mean last time i talked to her about this she only accepts communication through simple practice which is like a you know like a portal like do you ever email your doctor Mm-hmm. You have to go through the website. The, you can't just, you don't have his e- or no. her email address. You have to go through the the portal. And so that's what simple practice is, right? So she doesn't allow text anymore. She doesn't allow email. She doesn't allow, you know, she, she only allows that one venue because of the one in 300 clients that um, creates some, they're either confused about what the communication exactly is, or they abuse the open line of communication or, you know, something else that's happening. And they, so they end up operating outside um, perhaps the therapist's limits. The hard part is knowing what your limits are, because oftentimes when you're starting, you don't know right. what your limits are. And then being clear about that. Yeah. Yeah. And then what to do if a client um, wants something different than what you want to provide. Right. Exactly. Because like for you, Bob, you're saying, look, you know, I'm open and I'm dedicated and I have the time. And I was like that two years ago as well. I was like, well, you know, the occasional client who calls me on the weekend and is like, I'm having a hard time. Can you call me back? And I'd, I'd be like, I don't know if I'm entirely enjoying this invasion of my, of my free time. But at the same time, I'm really dedicated to this client. And so I want them to feel safe and, yeah. and it's probably only going to happen once every couple months. And, you know, it's, I'm dedicated to this, to this job and to this task. And so I'll do that. So understanding your, yeah, your preferences regarding that. What I say to clients, I, I don't get calls for individual therapy much anymore, but when I did, I would screen for, are you going to have much need? Do you, do you anticipate having much need for contact between sessions? And uh, for folks who have trouble with suicide and self-harm, I say, look, my life isn't set up to provide the level of care that I believe you deserve. And so I'm not a good fit for you because I'm actually not available as much as I think would be um, um, therapeutically indicated. And so let's save ourselves some hassle. Interesting. For you, by the way, uh, you can certainly as a therapist treat someone who has suicidal ideation as long but. For you, you're just not comfortable with that. What were you not comfortable with? Availability between sessions. Yeah. Yeah. Look, it really depends on your model. Like, what's your model about treatment? And the model I was exposed to when it comes to this stuff, there's a great deal of flexibility and availability um, built into the model. With DBT. Yeah. So it's understood that that's part of the gig. Um, But my life actually is not set up to provide what I think is reasonable, but it's just I don't have the uh, time or flexibility. Are you also affected by having lost a client to suicide? Oh, absolutely. Is that affecting this as well? Yeah, I don't. I don't uh, work with people that um, where that's likely to show up anymore. 
because of that incident. Yeah, it was really painful. Do you want to talk about it? Not especially, um, but I will. I lost a client to suicide, and um, I think before that, I worked with a number of people that were suicidal, um, and I probably had um, a weirdo belief that um, that would not happen. Like, uh-huh. just somehow that would not happen. Right. But, of course, it does happen. It did happen. Um, yeah, I think it's really common. Where, where do you think that weirdo assumption that it won't happen comes from? Lack of experience. But I also think it's wishful thinking. Oh, yeah. And maybe even a God complex as a magical therapist. Magical thinking, really, yeah. in my case. I didn't think I was God. I just thought, that's not going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. Um, like, if we're doing good enough work, that won't happen. Right. But but, but it does happen. And, yeah. And... Um, there's actually some research suggesting that therapists have almost no bearing, no effect on that, on suicidal attempts, suicide attempts. That 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 that's going to happen independent of the quality or level of care. I mean, I I, I could go into depth on that research because I think it's a little it, it's it's an oversimplification, mm-hmm. but I think the point of the research is saying, look, therapists, uh, you have to accept the fact that. Uh, on some level, you don't have that much control yeah, over a client's just, behavior outside of the session. Yeah. 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 So that was awful. Yeah. And, um, that I, I didn't want, I didn't want to go through that again. Yeah. What was awful about it? Guilt, fear, um, questioning. The most useful feedback i got after it happened i told a colleague of mine like i think a couple days later she's a dbt person and she said well bob um generally with when this happens you it boils down to one of two things either the therapist failed or the therapy failed therapy couldn't the 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 point was though that the client it's not that the client failed and this one's really hard for people this one's really hard to um i believe it though i believe that when when somebody shows up to the surgeon's whatever in the hospital or whatever because they have appendicitis and the surgeon does good surgery and the patient dies on the table, it isn't the patient's fault that they died. It's just either the surgeon failed or the surgery failed. The idea being that maybe the surgeon made a mistake or maybe we just don't have treatment that is 100% foolproof. Right. I think that's a different sentiment than the therapy failed you just could say we might not have the therapy for the therapy might not exist i think that's another way of putting that's what that's what the therapist failed or the therapy failed or there was nothing anyone could do that we have available to us today (laughs) that's that's maybe a clearer way of saying the thing that i mean Hmm. which is we might not have a we don't have a therapy that works for everybody right so um um, it could be that that's just par for the course, but the client can't fail. And I think that's important because um, in out of guilt or fear or shame, it's I've, I've seen this happen. Therapists blame right. clients or want to blame them. And that's bogus. Yeah, it's so frequent. And I'm not in contact with a lot of therapists aside from you and Rebecca these days. So I don't see it as often, but I used to see it just all the time. Just that. Yeah. Uh, and you know, I get it. You're insecure and you feel powerless. And so you want to blame something and clients are extremely easy to blame because they're not in the room. Usually when you're consulting or blaming, they can't defend themselves. 
even if they heard, they'd probably agree because they have low self-esteem mm-hmm. or something. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, yeah, I, it's always really irked me when I, early in my career, I remember noticing that and seeing that. I'm guessing I must have done it on some level, but anyway, yeah, that's, that's, um, well, the circumstances I remember about this event was you hadn't been seeing her. For, so one, this was like 20 years ago or something. It was a long time ago. Mm, and you were. 2005. 2005. Okay. And you were living in that place above the wing dome. That's right. <laughs> on Greenwood. Uh, and uh, the other day we actually, cause there's, um, there's a, a bathroom fixture store near across the street. I oh think. yeah. Yeah. And Stacy and I were in there and I was like, yeah, Bobby lived there above the window. And, uh, the rancid oil smell would waft right into your window. Oh, chicken smell like chicken all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like, but like not chicken, but a particular kind of like rancid cooked. <laughs> um, some of us objected to the smell more than others. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Winkdom, by the way, great place. In fact, you and I should go there. We should, we should go there. Sometime. We should go. That they, I remember they had this beer thing, a cylinder of, do you remember this? So, so like a yard. What's a yard? It's like a tall flask. That's yeah. a yard long. Oh, they call it a yard. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. It's, it's, it's this tall cylinder flask thing. Yeah. And they fill it with like a couple pitchers of beer or something. Ooh. I don't know. A lot of beer. Yeah. And then each person has like a spigot that you can oh. fill. No, I don't know about this. Oh, okay. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Anyway. That sounds like fun. So you were living there. Yeah, I was living there. That's and right. you were working a lot with people with suicidal I ideation. I was. So the chances were that, uh, you know, chances were greater that yeah. you're going to have someone attempt. Yeah. And she had dropped out of therapy for a while, like for a few weeks or maybe a couple months. Jeez, I don't remember that. I, I do. I remember you you were contacted by the family that she had died from suicide, and you were like, "I haven't. I thought she term. I thought she kind of terminated a month ago." Wow, isn't that funny? That's an important detail that I do not remember. Yeah, I remember thinking. Well, she, I remember thinking I'm not even sure if she was technically her client when she died. Hmm. Because the of the nature of how she had maybe not shown up and and you didn't hear from her or maybe she even said that she wanted to slow down or not come in or something because it it definitely wasn't you were talking with her about suicide and then the next day she killed herself. No, I don't recall anything like that or crisis call or whatever. Yeah. Um, but I, I boy, it's funny. You know, I don't think it's a great shock that I don't have a sharp memory for it. Why? Because you try to suppress it. I, yeah, I think it's emotional, and I don't. I don't know. If, does the human? Does the human su- try to suppress anything, or does the brain just sort of do it? Uh, both. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can avoid thinking about something. I definitely avoid thinking about it. But I also remember asking you back then because it what you were because we were both, I guess, kind of early career, first ten years yeah, of our career. That's true. And I hadn't had anything like that happen to me. Mm. And really haven't yet. I, yeah, yeah. I I had a client that died the morning of the intake, that killed himself the morning of the intake. Oh. You mean you met them? And no, I hadn't met him. Oh, they they hadn't come. Yeah, in I was supposed and... to meet him and his oh. parents, and he uh, he killed himself that oh. morning. Yeah. That's tragic. But 
so it was it was painful kind of but but i i don't know what he looks like i mm-hmm. never met him uh shocking um i've had clients attempt i've had clients think about it a lot but mm-hmm. i haven't had a client complete it mm-hmm. uh, i'm guessing that i've had that pa- some of my former clients have completed just by just by av- law of averages i suppose but but i don't know about any yeah right um but anyway i i remember uh what was i gonna say what was i i think you were talking about what happened back then and yeah the circumstance under which it happened that yeah I, that i don't recall yeah oh yeah so i remember asking you and i remember you saying that you did not blame yourself mm-hmm. i remember you saying that mm-hmm. i remember asking like or I remember th- saying something like, "Like you don't blame yourself, do you?" And and you're like, "Oh no, no, I I don't, I don't blame." It. I remember being like, "Oh, that's impressive that because it had just happened mm-hmm. that week or something, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. it you already were sure that it was not your fault." Wow, that's funny. I my memory for this is noticeably fuzzy, but also kind of it seems altered. It seems like you've you slightly altered the memory. Maybe to be more shameful or something more reason for suppressing because back then i remember because back then i remember thinking oh good for him wow i'm in, i'm impressed that that he that he did i could be making it i could no, be no, you, mis- you, misremembering you might be remembering it exactly right and it may be that my understanding of it and my assessment of myself has shifted over time and that might be confabulation or it might be a reconceptualization Reconceptual, reconceptualizing it, but I don't remember the part where they weren't in active treatment with me. Um, up up to the I don't remember that. I mean, I'm not saying it's not true. Yeah, I I also remember that you were slightly investigated. Were you not? No. Oh, they didn't reach out. The, no. the but the family contacted you. I I had contact with the person's brother. But they were fairly estranged, and nothing further came. Okay, nothing it. happened. Yeah. yeah, maybe we were thinking about that. Like, I wonder if we're being investigated. Yeah, well, we were. I'm sure we were, because who wouldn't, right? But but they didn't, and they didn't. They didn't invite you to the to the memorial. Or oh no, I went. Yeah, right. So yeah. that that's another part of my memory yeah. was that that you went. Yeah, me and what uh, was that like? Um, it was nice. You know, there were a lot of people there. Uh, was held by her neighbor, so I saw her house, um, and she was cremated. And what she wanted was for people that cared for her to um, scatter her ashes in a park near where she near where she lived. And so, me and my friend uh, were given some of her ashes, and we we did that. I'd never done that sort of thing before. Um, and, um, you know, it was solemn. If you could go back and work with her and do you remember her? Oh, yes. What would you do differently? Um, I would say to her at the start that it's outside my limits to work with somebody who isn't committed to living. And the reason I say that isn't because um, is because that was one of the things that she said to me when we started was that she was not committed to living, that she had a date in mind by which she intended to end her life, 
and um, I I wouldn't put myself through it again. At the time, did you think, well, we'll oh, overcome this? Yep. I did think that. Pure hubris. I did think yeah. that. Well, that's what we're trained to do. I mean, we're uh, it's not common for a supervisor or a trainer to say, if someone says that, you terminate with them. <laughs> no. Um, they say, they say uh, therapy helps. Yeah. Well, um, um, at this point in life, understanding that situation from this vantage point, I would say, I, I, don't, I don't know how to work with that. I don't want to work with that. It's too scary for me. Hmm. Um, because of that, that she died. That it, yeah. Well, um, not being committed up front and being actually clear about having an intention to kill yourself is that would preclude my willingness to enter into a therapy relationship. Because I mean, of your own well-being? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Purely for my own well-being and welfare. Because, hmm. um, um, I mean... I don't mess around. I really do care about my clients and I don't want to get involved, invested in, um, open my heart to somebody who's, you know, intention. And hers was a really unusual circumstance. The only person I ever met before or since who had that kind of, um, resolve. Yes. Resolve. Uh, so if someone came in and said, I've attempted in the past. I might do it in the future. I don't, but I want to try to not. You'd work with them? No. Um, um, though I, I wouldn't, that's, I wouldn't turn down because of that. I turn them down because A, I don't want to go through it again. I don't, I don't want to risk going through it again if I can avoid it. And B, I actually cannot provide the level of care that I believe is reasonable and necessary to help somebody because um, people with those kinds of um, impulses often have them between sessions, not during. And you would recommend DBT? Oh, yeah. 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 Uh, and the classes and the individual Personal therapy. counseling and then phone that, coaching is generally uh, what DBT therapists expect, par for the course. Do you blame yourself? For her passing? For Sorry, not for her passing, for her killing herself. Uh... I'm not 100% clear that it's, I don't have a part in it. I can say that. What would you have, how would you have contributed? I don't know. Oh, um, maybe through ignorance, uh, through, I, I think I'm a much better therapist now than I was back then. Um, I had hubristic magical thinking about, oh, that's just not going to happen because that's not going to happen because I'm here and I, you know, but you were a good therapist back then, and you were a therapist to her then, yeah. and you did everything that you knew to do, right? Yeah. And I did how long do, did you work with her? I think a year, maybe a little less. And Somewhere between six months and a year. And she, But from the day she met you and throughout, you suspect she absolutely was 100% sure she was going to kill herself. Oh, yeah, she, you know, she was very clear about that. Yeah. And yeah. was clear throughout the, her time with you? You would check in about that? Yes. And uh, let's see if I can remember right. We would formulate these sort of, I wouldn't do this again either, these contracts about safety and loopholes because she was always looking for them. Loopholes to not 
attempt? Yeah. Looking for excuses to not attempt. She was looking for ways to squirm out of an agreement to not uh, harm or kill herself. And so I we ended up creating these somewhat elaborate contracts that where I was trying to cover all the possible loopholes and ways in which she could twist interpreting it to something other than, look, we ha- I need to work, work with this agreement that, you know, you're actually going to cooperate with me and not kill yourself. Yeah. And that my agreement is that I'll be available to you as best I can um, when you need me. Um, and then here's the contingency for the other thing. But I need us to have an understanding that I need to make sure we have a mutual goal. She and I did not have a mutual goal. Which is one of the things you do. And yet there's this myth that's been created recently as a backlash to contracting that contracting is wrong, but it's not. It It's great. It just yeah. can't be the only thing you do. It can't be the only thing. Um, so uh, do you feel like when she killed herself, she was thinking about you partially? Because, you know, a year of intense therapy with someone when... She probably talked with her suicide, her suicidal thoughts with you more than anyone else. Probably me more than anybody else. Yes. Yeah, in the note, she said, don't blame Bob. In her note? Mm-hmm. Really? Mm-hmm. Wow. So she was writing to her family or something? Yeah, I believe. Or whoever was going to discover her. Yeah I, th- yeah, I think I remember that, too. Yeah. And I think I remember thinking, well, that helps. <laughs> In terms of you being sued, you know, because that's always our terror is right. we're going to get sued for that. Sued. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I th- so again, it's all foggy, but I seem to remember there was not just conversations with the brother, but there were conversations with other family members, and there was like a a space where we weren't sure wh- how these people were going to take it. Yes, and then ultimately they're like. They didn't pursue it. I, I seem to remember there was like a kind of a question mark if they were going to, because they were upset, obviously, yeah. that their family member died. And I remember there was kind of a question mark of, are they going to come after you? Yeah, I remember. I was on uh, Denny Avenue between Pink Elephant and the Whole Foods, driving east and talking to her brother and expressing my sympathy and and sadness for, you know, what happened um in part because i genuinely was sad about what happened but also in part because um when when caregivers express sadness they're less likely to be sued when right. they when they express care well, or as opposed to being defensive or defensive something. or you know circling the wagons or you know not talking and being standoffish and right. you know like insular Right. Um, that's a mistake to do that. You knew that right away. Uh, I knew that because I had read about it somewhere along the way. Yeah. Not not because of that, but because I just I learned that somewhere. Yeah. yeah. And applied it probably in other situations too, when a client would criticize you or something. Yeah. Right. How does it feel to talk about it? Not great. I feel uh, a little squeamish. Um, squeamish, scared of what? Well, you know, like. It's a bit shameful. Uh, no. Well, uh, let me let me say that again. I feel ashamed. I think that's a fairly common feeling. Um, You've failed. Yes. Um, I also think it's important to talk about because, A, 
um, folks out there are going to have experience with it. And so we might as well talk about it. It's real. Um, um, and because I actually can't, I can't, it flew out of my head, whatever I was going to say. Would you work with a client who had never attempted, but thought about suicide occasionally? Oh yeah. 85% of the population has thought about it from one time or another. Well, but thinks about it, you know, actively, but has never attempted. Yeah. I'd assess that. I'd I'd be looking for vulnerability and protection factors. Um, um, And that wouldn't be a deal breaker. Do you think other non-DBT therapists listening right now should be like you or should they be different? Non-DBT people should avoid working with folks who have trouble with suicide and self-harm impulses and thoughts. I don't know. Um, I, I think DBT is still the gold standard for that. So I think it might be simplest to learn it if you're going to work with that population. So uh, if someone's in L.A., for example, as okay. a therapist, and there's DBT in L.A., undoubtedly, yes. and uh, a, their therapist client comes in and says, yeah, I've attempted in the past. I think actively about suicide. I'm kind of on the fence about it. And they're in individual private practice. You would recommend that they refer them to the DBT group. Or that the therapist learn DBT. But not try to forge ahead with, with non-DBT treatment. I, I wouldn't do that. If I were somebody working with somebody in that, I would not um, forge ahead without that. And the elements of DBT that are most important with this is emotional regulation. The model not only is a listening therapy, but it's a teaching form of therapy. Mm -hmm. CBT. It is a form of CBT. And there's contact. There's a, a system in place for in between session contact. There's specific interventions around suicidal thoughts. Yeah. They teach teach skills. Yeah. And mindfulness and all that stuff. Yeah. Uh, Could those elements be um, conducted by a therapist that wasn't DBT that basically understood those things? Yeah, I think they could. Um, One thing that DBT generally has is um, there's a specific skills training component, like a class. And so standard DBT has folks doing personal counseling and attending skills training, generally speaking, in a class. I think the group part of that, not group therapy, but being in a class with other people who are learning the same stuff is probably, it's enormously helpful and beneficial. The other elements of um, DBT are um, that personal counselors have consult team. So they they work... Linehan says it's a team of therapists. Treat it's a it's a group of therapists treating a group of clients. So it's not any one person's case. It, the team shares this case. The one person is primary and does you know, so that when that person goes out of town, there's a plan for coverage, um, um, either um, substitute sessions or just you know who's going to be taking phone coaching. Generally, it's skills trainers that do that. Though I don't do that anymore. Um, because I'm not on the standard DBT team. Um, also, um, personal counseling has a hierarchy of um, bits to pay attention to, and the first bit is life-threatening behavior. 
anything that's life-threatening has to come first. It doesn't mean that it's the only thing you'll talk about in the session, but what it does mean is, you know how most, most of the time when you think about going to personal counseling, you just think it's going to be the agenda that you bring? This one is like, no, it's, that's not the agenda that you bring. We actually have to address this because if you die, as far as I know, therapy isn't going to help you. And then the second, so that's the first, the second one is anything that's therapy interfering. So that's anything that anybody, client, therapist is doing that's interfering with therapy. So like not coming to sessions or not going to skills class or um, not completing diary card, which is like a way to track um, um, not only skills practice, but also um, um, suicidal thoughts, suicide or self-injury, suicide attempt or self-injury, um, crisis. Uh, there's other stuff on the thing. I mean, they, they tend to tailor them. So tracking tar- what they call target behaviors. So not doing a diary card, not tracking that stuff is definitely a therapy interfering thing because it's like hard to learn about what happens. If you could think of um, moments of crisis as like having antecedents, like dominoes falling. Mm-hmm. Understanding the dominoes that fall before and after, that's behavioral therapy. Is it is it because of something that came before or because something that came after that reinforces the let's say it's um cutting, that reinforces cutting. Is it the is it the antecedent that leads up to cutting, or is there some kind of reinforcer or payoff from cutting, like relief or uh, distraction or euphoria or whatever? Um and learning about that because what you're gonna want to do is interrupt it. Uh-huh. And have another way to get that euphoria. Or learn to live without it because... Or have another way to have relaxation, for example. Yeah, get relief or... Yeah, yeah, right. Um, Because that's... um, Non-lethal self-cutting is associated with greater risk of suicide. Yeah. Um, um, And then third is quality of life, which is generally what people think of when they come to therapy. It's like, I want to talk about this thing that happened with my partner the other day or, um, you know, some trouble I'm having with my boss or something. Um, That comes third. And a good DBT therapist will um, talk it to death uh, and not, and um, work, not, the the, the good DBT therapists are really nice, Mm -hmm. but they're not, squishy and they're really clear about their um, treatment hierarchy and they will hold to it. Meaning uh, that client comes in and says, hey, you know, I got a fight with my husband. Okay, before we get into that, we got to talk about yeah, your like, triggering behaviors. Look at talk this about diary card your, here your, where you, your, you your know, safety, we got to yeah. talk about your, yeah. all those things. Then we can talk about yeah. what you want to talk about. Right. Let's, let's do this first and then yeah. that second. Yeah. Well, so what I'll just say... That's just me, though. Yeah, totally. Which is all correct. There's yeah. nothing incorrect. But yeah. I have a broader, um, I don't know, stance, which is that... And listen to my deep dives on suicide uh, for patrons only if you want to hear all the research and all the um, things that you need to do for clients about suicide. And before I forget... If anyone's out there is thinking about suicide, make sure you're talking with your therapist about it and or calling whatever crisis line is in your area. Keep yourself safe. There is a um, national national suicide prevention hotline that is 1-800-273-8255. You can chat on their website or call them on the phone and talk with them. It's critical that everyone understands 
that suicidal intention is usually a spiked experience, meaning that you suddenly will have motivation and that if you can have someone to talk to or just even have a distraction for a couple of days, it usually goes away, mm-hmm. if not always. So, and the vast majority of the time, individuals later on will say, I'm glad I didn't do it. Yes. So it's very important that even though you might feel very um, um, sure that you this is the best option, almost all the time, you're going to later say, I think I was in a kind of a different state of mind in that moment, mm-hmm. and I and I'm glad I got through it. Yeah. So, uh, and calling a hotline or a therapist or a friend or whatever uh, is just just do it is the thing I'll say. Um, the thing that I'll say is that therapists. So I can't remember the exact stat, but something like ninety eight percent of therapists have worked with a. A significantly suicidal client. So it's a very common thing that people come into, th- maybe not the primary reason they're coming in, but one of the things that we see. And so we all have to be extremely uh, either good at treating it and, or we have to screen it as Bob does. Bob mm-hmm. screens people because of his professional um, preferences. He screens out people who are beyond a certain threshold of suicidality. And he believes that, he can't provide the sort of therapy that people need and meaning full-blown DBT, mm-hmm. uh, which is also fine, but that's not my belief. My belief is that obviously DBT is a, a very well um, researched and buttoned up model for suicide. And if anything's going to work, it's probably going to be that. But as an individual therapist, you can, have all the elements of dbt essentially you know the 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 essential elements of db the the exploration of emotions the exploration of antecedents the the exploration of rewards the awareness because you have to if you're going to treat suicide you have to understand non-suicidal self-injury you have to understand spikes in intention you have to understand emotional regulation you have to understand how PTSD might work in people and trauma and dissociation and demoralization and uh, thwarted belongingness and all these things. You have to understand the signs that people give off when they are preparing. You have to understand what are factors like drinking. One of the first things I always ask trainees when they tell me they have a suicidal client is I say, does the client drink? Because if the client drinks, that increases the chance of them completing it by a lot to a card. Yeah. Do they have a gun? Are they a man? Cause men are much more likely to succeed. Uh, did they just get out of a relationship? You know, these are things that you have to know so that you can amp up your monitoring and your crisis plan. And then you have to know what to do with a crisis plan. You have to understand your responsibilities. You have to understand. And all the time, I've never seen this not be true that so people, and I think maybe you were like this in the beginning, and I probably was too. I know I was. Where you, as a novice therapist, and that noviceness can exist for 10 years plus, depending on your experience. You have a fantasy, as Bob was talking about earlier, that it's just not going to happen to you. But you also have this terror that it is going to happen to you. Yeah. <laughs> 
you're terrified that it's going to happen, but your defenses kick in and say, well, it's not going to happen. And there's also this uh, worry that you're not going to do the right thing. The problem is, is that to do to know what to do, you have to have a significant amount of training or a very knowledgeable supervisor that'll walk you through the steps and make sure that you're doing it. You know, similar to the Linehan model where there's a team, right? And if anyone is freaking out as a therapist, some other therapist will be there and say, you're freaking out, follow step, follow the steps, you know, step one, step two. And the other thing that I find, found was that novice therapists will always underestimate the risk. Mm-hmm. I, I think because of inexperience, but also because of wishful thinking mm-hmm. that I'll be hearing the signs from the, from the client as the trainee is telling me. And I'm like, this person's imminent risk. And they're oh, well, I'll hear, I'll get the science. And as a test, I'll say what the risk level is. Cause I actually have a whole handout that I, that I made that late. Cause I find that there's no, I didn't find any good material that really uh, walked you through the steps very coherently so I had to develop my own, and I give it to my supervisees, and I say, okay, walk yourself through it. And, the, and they'll be like, yeah, I think they're moderate. And I'm like, no, this person's imminent. <laughs> this person is high likelihood of attempting in the near future, and you have to move to hospitalization. Then the other thing that novice therapists will do is they will resist that because because we're not used to as therapists being police people, mm-hmm. you know, being controlling. Because when we get to that level of imminence, but even as we work our way up to high risk, because you, you have no risk, you have low, you have no, low, moderate, high, and imminent. And there's even different gradients of imminent in my model. But anyway, the point is, is that the therapists will always resist having to do something because uh, it requires us imposing something on the client. You know, we have to say... Because at first you would ask a client, would you go to the hospital? If they say no, we have to actually force them to go to the hospital. And therapists, are they just have a really hard time accepting that responsibility. And they might not have known that they were signing up for that responsibility. Mm-hmm. Have you ever had to do that before? Do what? Force someone into hospital? Force. No, I don't recall ever forcing anybody. Being very convincing? What I've done, well, you know, Washington State, they have county designated mental health professionals, which are the people in the state that are have the right to um, force people into hospital. And so I, um, early on, um, I made use of that when I believed that somebody else was... You call them and say... Yeah, and then to... they, they will come and assess, and they have the capacity to force somebody, the legal... Would you call them into your office or? This was back when I first moved to Seattle and I was working as a case manager. Um, We would have fairly frequently um, these kind of uh, suicide crises. And so I became very familiar with the CDMH piece. um, But it has been 27 years since I had anything like that going on in my world. Right. Yeah, it's one of the luxuries of being in private practice is that we tend to get easier clients essentially which is another problem because Mm -hmm. all the novice therapists are the ones in these agencies with the higher risk clients and they're 
Because, um, you know, I'm saying novice therapists this whole time are having troubles, but I'm guessing experienced therapists would also have troubles, because, but they don't run into it very often because they tend to be in private practice and don't yeah. have a lot of clients like this. Right. Yeah. Anyway. Okay, there were three more questions, Bob. Let's pump them out. Okay. I'm a gay man in a long-term relationship. I would prefer to have sex every day, but my partner would prefer only to masturbate together and have sex once or twice a year. Is either preference pathological? No. Yeah. Let's just say no to that. Uh, I, I don't... I, I understand why some people would think that, and you have a difference in your preference Definitely. for sex, which sucks. Yeah. But you don't have to pathologize other persons. No, you no. know, sex is a personal choice, and it's really wide range of normal. Yeah. When a pet dog is approaching the end of life, mm-hmm. is it a good strategy to adopt another dog to help the dog companion and human grief? To help. With dog companionship and human grief. So, so when your dog is about to die, is it a good strategy to get another dog to help with companionship and with your grief process? Um, I don't know. I, we're not going to do that. Our dog is 15. Um, we're not going to do that because we don't want a, um, a distraction from the attention we want to pay to her. Um, How close is she to? I don't know. She's... Oh. she's She's gimpy. She's old. Yeah. She's definitely slowing down. Um, she's still got some verve in her, though. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 She's not going anywhere today. Um, but, you know, it's probably in the next 18 to 24 months, probably, somewhere in there. Right. Um, uh, so we're not going to do that because we don't want to do that. And also, I don't think that that's a good idea for us to um, try to mitigate grief. And Rosie is Colleen's heart dog. Heart dog? Yeah. Is that a phrase? I. It's a phrase that some of the dog people use. What's it mean? It means, like, the dog that's so, 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 so special to you. Like, even though you love all your dogs, this is the one that really is in your lives in your heart. Mm, I like that. Yeah. Um, and uh, I think that that's... That that's inevitable. And mm. so I don't think having another dog is actually going to do anything. Plus, she doesn't want one. So, um, And then she says, you know, Bob, I don't know if I'm going to want another dog after Rosie. I'm like, yeah, sure, whatever. Mm. Uh, that's fine. Uh, lately, she's talking about getting a cat, though. Um, so we'll see. Anyways, um, the answer to my answer to the question is uh, that's not what we're going to do. Yeah. Last question. Oh, what we banging them out. What motivates you to get up and start a chore or work, etc., when you're feeling lazy? Accountability to yourself? Not usually. No, usually to somebody else. Okay. Um like for instance, I take my writing class. I meet every Saturday from 10:15 to 1:15 or 2, depending on how time management went that day. Uh seven other writers and my teacher who's awesome and um because i have to bring something to the class i make sure i write something during the week are you writing new things or still writing your novel novel but i'm 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 writing things to get it so that i can complete it okay yeah but i'm I'm not on a different project no okay yeah well that's good you're going to complete it 
I hope so. Yeah, I intend to. Yeah, yeah. How well, about you? Oh, what do I do? I don't know. <laughs> I'm not a lazy person, so that's true. You're not. <laughs> I don't. I don't really. I don't know why, but I like getting things done. Well, I, I'm like one hmm. of the most. Like Stacy actually get up, she gets upset at me because I do things too fast sometimes. Like, hmm. like she'll come into my office. She'll be like. She's like, so could you maybe do this thing and I'll just get up and do it? Right. And she'll be like, so you don't have to do it right now. Yeah. And I'm like, well, why not? You know, yeah. I, you just, I don't want to, I don't want it hanging over my head. I'll just, I'll just take 10 minutes. I'll do it right now. Now's good. And, and so she'll be upset. She'll be like, I don't want to tell you to do anything because you're just going to drop everything and do it. And I'm like, well, that's, I don't, I'm not doing, it's not a passive aggression. I just, I like getting things done. Yeah. I, I really enjoy Especially when someone else needs something, yeah, you know, someone's so like, "I need this." I'll be like, "Boom, let's yeah, do it." You let's know, do it. Um, so for whatever reason, my brain is, my dopamine system or whatever is situated that I, I just do not suffer from any kind of barriers. But now you mostly do your day is populated by stuff you want to do. Well, that's the other part of it is that I am in touch with what I want to do. Yeah, and. If I so if I don't want to do something, then yeah, I, I'm going to be quote unquote lazy about it. Um, <laughs> like one of the things that I am being lazy about right now, I suppose. And I did a whole deep dive on procrastination, where I said, "Don't call yourself lazy because it's it's not accurate." But yeah, yeah, I don't even know what the word means. Yeah, the better word is, I don't want to do it. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> is uh, I get I, I administered a survey to all the patrons months ago. Oh, and. and it was really involved and hundreds of people responded and I spent a lot of time because I love data and I love making reports and making graphs and stuff. And I, I, uh, combed through all the quantitative data and there's a lot and the survey was way too long. There's too much data, but then I got to the qualitative responses, which there were several questions with qualitative responses, which is just the dumbest thing you can do as a researcher. You're going to get that many responses. It is. Yeah. yeah. And so I, on my to-do list, there has been this line item that says code responses, code survey responses. It has been there for months. And I, and I've even played little games with myself where I'll put it on the calendar. I'll say, okay, well, I have a four hour block of time. I'll, I'll just, I'll just dedicate that time. And then I get that. Ah, I'll do it. I'll do it another time. There's other things I got to do. And uh, so what motivates me? A big part of it is the thing it's on. It's on my to-do list, you know, and sometimes I'll take things off my to-do list. I'll just be like, yeah, I'm just not going to. I just, I give up. I, I, I just, I, I'm not going to ever, I don't, I clearly don't want to do this thing. And I don't like it hanging over my head, so I'll just I'll just get rid it's not of it. Vital. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, I think another thing that motivates me is the feeling of uh, of everything being done. There, mm -hmm. There's a really a nice feeling of okay, everything is done. You know, looking forward to that feeling. Yeah, me anyway. too. All right, Bob. Well, we finally got. We finally How's your got feeling. <laughs> what? How's it feel to be done? Yeah. With all the survey questions? Well, no, with the three that we got through. Uh, oh, wait, was that the last three? That was the last three. We did it. We did it. It took six episodes. Yeah. Right on. 
And everyone out there, please take care of yourself because you deserve it.